Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. With us today is Patrick Benoit, Global Head of Cyber GRC and BISO at CBRE. He's here to talk with us today about data risk management, which is a little bit different from data management. It's a slightly new twist on an old problem we've all been tackling. Patrick, thanks so much for coming on down to the ranch. Hey, Alan, how you doing? I'm doing great. That's wonderful of you to ask. I don't think a single guest has ever asked me before. That's a very Texan thing to do. Listeners, for those who don't know Patrick, he's a, he's a local luminary here in the security scene in DFW. That's the Dallas-Fort Worth area for my international listeners. He's a fellow Texan. I'm more than grateful to have him on this show. First, a brief word about our sponsor. Time is the enemy of cybersecurity. Time spent identifying devices that are missing endpoint agents with known vulnerabilities that are unmanaged, that need updates. Time spent identifying cloud instances that aren't being scanned, that are misconfigured. Time spent gathering asset data. Time is the enemy of cybersecurity, until Axonius. By connecting to existing data sources, customers get a comprehensive asset inventory, understand security gaps, and automatically validate and enforce security policies. Thank you, Axonius, for sponsoring this show. So, Patrick, why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about how you got into cyber and telling us a little bit about your day job? Yeah, so it's a long and sometimes boring story, but it took a lifetime to get here. I uh, started in the military, did all the typical learn about technology stuff through the military and school and what have you, and then programmed radar systems for a while for defense contractors, worked in software development for years and years, and did consulting and eventually came over to enterprise again where I worked in infrastructure, infrastructure delivery and customer delivery at Dell. During that entire time, I had responsibility for security as well. It just wasn't my primary remit. And so then I went to Experian, same kind of thing, helped build out a basically a BSO program and a BIO program, so a business information officer. And in doing that, got more intensely involved with uh, security and then was asked by a divestiture. Once we divested a, one of the entities, the divestiture came back to me and said, could you please come help build our security program? And so I worked with a, another CISO that had come from Mattel. I did all of the, the GRC side of the house, and, and she had the technical and the overall responsibility. We built the program and then came over here to a CBRE to build another BSO program. And then eventually the same thing kind of happened. Can you take over the GRC component of our security office as well? So a long and twisty road. So what does a day in the life look like in your current role? Well, besides the 12 to 16 Zoom calls a day, just, you know, uh, talking to everybody and anybody, because I have a facing role as a BSO, a customer facing, client facing role as a BSO, I end up getting involved in lots of discussions with clients about solutioning that we're doing for them or services that we're providing. And then from the GRC point of view, you know, I'm involved in almost everything to do with any of the initiatives that we have. And then usually after work, I deal with the day job of taking care of emails and answering and responding and then uh, managing the team itself, you know, getting the team to make sure that they're on track. I've been there living that after work email lifestyle as we speak, which I, I don't think that ever goes away, right? I don't care what the role is or the company. I'm checking emails at night. I just am. It becomes defensive. You have to. Yeah, it does. It does. So this GRC world and this Visa world, they tie into this model you've built for yourself called 
data risk governance. And it's different from the classic idea of data governance. What's the big differentiator? You put the word risk in there. Obviously, that means risk is sort of key to your model. But what does that, what does that mean? Walk me through that. Yeah, so interestingly, the sales aspect of my BISO role has made me come to accept the fact, you know, movement to the dark side, into the sales force, so to speak. And so as a senior security executive to help with sales pursuit and account management, it's how you present the story to the client that always becomes the, uh, the one of the biggest issues. And you present a bad story and they're going to dig deeper. So in thinking about this initially, the, the same thing came about with data governance. We talk about data governance, but in its truest form, governance is really just about telling people what they need to do. And it doesn't really go far enough in my mind. What goes far enough is we need to protect the data. And that has that component of risk assessment, which when you wrap that all together again, there's only two things that any good CISO is really responsible for. And that's reducing risk, but then helping to enhance revenue. So this is a component of reducing the risk and it will help enhance the revenue because we can prove out our data protection to clients and customers. And so that's kind of where it evolved from almost as a marketing salesy kind of thing. But the reality is that the data is the gold. It's the oil that we run on now. And so we have to protect it. And the biggest hit to our reputation would also come from a loss of data, not from just a simple you know, exploit that hits our system. But if we lose data, that's where we're going to get hurt. So protecting the data becomes everything. So there's some required precursors then. If you're going to implement a sound data risk governance program, obviously, like you said, it's started as kind of a marketing and salesy sort of thing, but it's it's been fleshed out and made real. There's obviously some precursors there. What are those precursors? What are the things you have to do to really kick this off and make this happen? Well, like many things, you know, we often chase the shiny objects and and after the next cool thing and and always try and solve our issues in security with technology. And it's not always a technology solution that you need first. And we can't forget our basics. You know, we got to go back to 101, which is, do we even know what we have? You know, what are we protecting? We're throwing up all these fences and throwing up all these perimeters and such, but do we even know what we're protecting? So you have to go back and take a business risk or a business risk, a data risk approach to things and analyze what is your important data? How does that tie into your governance with respect to how you classify data, which generally is at a very high level? In most companies, you have four data classifications. You know, you might do restricted, confidential, proprietary, public kind of thing. And that doesn't necessarily tell you enough information. So you have to dig into what that really means. And so that that whole component of identifying what you have is huge. And there are tools to help you do that. But oftentimes that's put at the back end of the process. It's like, let's put it in a tool that's going to stop everything that's restricted from going out of the company. But then you get that implemented and everybody looks at each other and goes, whoa, how do we know what's restricted? And so, you know, you need to figure out what you have first and then how you're going to tag it and how you're going to maintain it, how you're going to take care of that stuff and how it's going to impact the business itself before you start getting into all of these fancy tools to, you know, data loss prevention and looking for leakage and whatever else you want to do. I get you on that. And I'll tell you just from personal experience, I've been in companies where data classification and and data, uh, let's say data discovery followed by data classification were edicts of we're going to get this done and we're going to do this and we're going to tackle this in its entirety before we roll out DLP and CASB and whatever else to protect said data, we're going to know what we have. And 
It's a daunting task. It's a very daunting task. I've worked in businesses where automated tools were deployed, expensive automated tools were deployed. A great amount of work was done. Application mapping was laid on top of that, and more data was discovered through the application layers of how the different apps talk to each other. You know, whole databases were discovered and uncovered through that methodology. And months and months and months and months and months of activity getting into this and grinding down and grinding down. And all of this, by the way, was uh, was actually as a precursor work for GDPR was the ostensible funding behind all of this, right? But it took forever. And when it was all said and done, I was personally confident as the CISO that we had scraped maybe 60, 65% of the surface, that there was still a vast amount of data undiscovered, unclassified, unknown, you know, some of it unstructured, probably most unstructured, but even still probably some databases we didn't know about. That's a daunting task. And and I'm with you that you want to be able to do all that before you start deploying the tools, because if you just throw up DLP, what, you know, what, what are you protecting? Right. But how do you overcome that challenge? Because in my mind, that's, it's a fool's errand to try to think you can just suddenly tackle your entire data world and come out shiny knowing what you have and where it is and how it's categorized. Well, it's the same way we eat the big tech steak in Amarillo, the 72 ounce steak. You know, you got to make sure you eat it one bite at a time because you, you try and go after that whole thing and you got a problem. And, and it, it really is the same thing. So yes, you can get paralyzed with analyzing and trying to get every little bit of data. And that's not the answer either. So you got to strike a balance. You brought up a key point between structured and unstructured data. Most of our risk is probably in unstructured data, more likely than anything else, because it is unstructured by nature. Most of our risk of loss is also probably through email, people sending around spreadsheets of stuff that you don't expect. So you got to do some prioritization and get the big, big hitting, uh, you know, big value returns on, on the investment so that you don't end up paralyzed in it. And then you just have to chunk away at it. And that's all based on that risk formula. So now you have to say, you know, what's the greatest risk to our, our reputation or to our loss of data? And, and it likely is going to be you know, email loss, unstructured data. You, you can identify it's probably going to be data in your people or HR organization or data in your finance organization or data in your you know, strategy organization. So you've got some heavy hitters you can start with to make that a, an easier task. That's a really good point because, you know, even even if you haven't touched the specific data itself, you know your areas of, of sensitivity, right? I worked at one company years ago, I uh, won't name names, an insider threat problem occurred and an angry ex-employee who was fired decided to retaliate by breaking into the CEO's mailbox, which he was able to successfully do, finding a whole bunch of competitive materials. Well, not competitive materials, but materials about an upcoming program that was being developed. This was a product that was under development and emailing that sensitive information about that product to literally the competition, the other company down the road. Thankfully, <laughs> it all worked out where the folks on the other end were ethical and were like, hey, I don't think I'm supposed to receive this. But there's an example of, you know, forward-looking roadmap, product concerns and designs, obviously a sensitive target, especially in a competitive landscape. HR data worked at another company where payroll data, <laughs> it, was, it was a CEO impersonation attack. Somebody was convinced in payroll that it was the actual CEO. And sure enough, every single North American employee's salary, home address, Social security number, the whole shebang went out the door to whoever these folks were. So clearly you've got areas that you can just define up front and say payroll data sensitive, product roadmap data sensitive, HR data sensitive. And before you dive into that digging, you should be able to do broad strokes. Have you 
Have you found yourself still getting lost in the digging after you've declared those those high-level categories? In other words, once you say HR matters, have you found your teams are spinning out trying to find all the data in HR, or do the broad strokes continue to work for you as you move on elsewhere in the organization? Well, I, yeah, I'm a believer in you have to accept the fact that there's only a piece of this that is a project, a true project, which is probably that initial chunk phase where you're identifying stuff and deploying some kind of protection for it. And you have to, as part of that, architect a, a factory process, I'll use as a term. And I don't like the BAU term. I, I don't know why. It just doesn't feel right. But factory kind of term so that we can continue to analyze and continue to refine over time. Because this is not a project. It's not a do it, walk away, done. It is an ongoing, systematic process that you have to have in place. And, you know, you can take different approaches to get there, too. It's uh, So we see this all the time. We see this with firewalls, the deny all, right, except what you let in. Well, how about everything's restricted unless we say otherwise? You know, that's one approach. I don't know if it's the right approach because politically it may not fly. But you can also say everything's public unless we say otherwise. There's got to be a balance in there somewhere. But I'm just saying you have to pick your approaches first. I think a process like the uh, tagging that's uh, coming out now where you can tag the documents is a huge move forward, except if you don't have a classification, it doesn't matter. <laughs> so, right, right. You, you know, but the tagging is going to be an amazing thing because you, you still don't want the data to get out, but at least if it gets out, you've got some protection. Yeah, I, I get that. And I guess there's a certain legacy versus go forward approach that you can factor in there as well, right? In other words, Okay, we declared at a high level, HR matters, payroll matters, product roadmap matters, all right? Now we've gone to the obvious sources of those data and we've declared what we can, but now there's new data coming out. HR every day is generating new data. Payroll every day is generating new data. And we sit down with them and say, all new data must be tagged. All new data must go through whatever the new rules are we've established, be it the allow all or deny all or whatever. But but basically saying, starting with net new, like, like we've laid a foundation for the obvious big stuff and now we're moving into net new. And over time, eventually, in theory, you could get to a place where everything's all humming and, and working the way you want it to, and only your most legacy and, in theory, unused data is all that's that's not being processed properly. Now, that begs the question of, do you have a good retention and destruction policy, right? Exactly. You just walked into that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if you don't, you, you're, you're stuck, you know? And so you need to draw, as you said, you just described it perfectly. You need to draw a line in the sand that says, henceforth and forevermore, this is what's going to happen. And then you need to continue to do cleanup on what's newest behind that line. But eventually, if you've got a good retention schedule and a good retention process, the, the movement of the retention line is going to creep up on you and you're eventually going to be at the line that you drew, which means then you should be good. I like that. And I guess, you know, there's, there's a maxim I've always lived by. Old data may be useless to you, the organization. But depending on the type of old data, it may still be completely valuable to the bad guys, even if it's 15 years old. In other words, let's say it's that payroll data, and it's chock full of social security numbers. You haven't used this particular file in your payroll department in 10 years, but it's not like those social security numbers have expired or changed in that 10 years. The bad guys get a hold of that ancient piece of data, and they get everything they want, even though it's a piece of data you don't need anymore. So getting that that rigor in the retention and destruction we talked about the model of start with your big targets, right? And then do to, do the go forward plan. How do we, in that model, 
go back and find the legacy crap that really shouldn't be there? What's the go forward plan to go backwards? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that becomes to some degree can become a philosophical discussion with the legal folks, especially because depending on which legal person you talk to, you will either get, oh, no, we got to have everything in case we have to defend. Or you'll get, oh, no, don't keep that. We might have to let it out in discovery someday. And so you're, you're kind of stuck in the middle. I think the best approach to retention, frankly, is that you only retain if it's regulatory necessary or if you can show a specific business purpose for keeping it a certain period of time. We've got three-year contract renewals as an example. So if there was no legal requirement to keep supporting documentation for an initial contract or something for the due diligence or whatever, then don't keep it. But you know you're on a three-year cycle, so maybe you do need to keep it for five years because you need one full cycle plus a little bit. So I think you just have to do that analysis, and there has to be buy-in at the highest levels that if we don't have a reason to have it, we should get rid of it. We see that most in uh, emails and chat messaging. And I've seen a lot more movement in companies in the last couple of years to, hey, 90 days, the email's gone. You know, unless you specifically tag it for archive, it's gone. Chat messages, 30 days. Unless you specifically move it and save it, it's gone. Now, to some degree, that creates a bad habit because there are those out there that will say, well, I need everything. And they'll just start storing it off somewhere. And so have you really accomplished anything? But hey, it's a step in the right direction. Yeah. With the chat specifically, I've actually seen non-saved period, that all chat messages are dynamic, that you can have a chat. I, I can be chatting with you and my I am client, close it, open it. Our entire past conversation is gone, that it's completely, completely volatile. Which is such an easy technology because, I mean, we have that on phones, like with uh, messaging like Signal, you have disappearing messages as an option. Yeah, exactly. Where you send a message and three hours later, seven days later, one month later, it just disappears on both sides. Yeah, it's just gone. It's just gone. And and that volatility to me, it's interesting. I worked at, again, one company, not naming names. The HR department was operating under the assumption that chat messages were not archived because they didn't show in the local client. But it turns out they were being archived on the server. And I came in as a new CISO asking all these questions about what is and isn't archived. And I was told, oh, yeah, 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 all that stuff's archived on the server. I said, does legal know that? I don't know. Does HR know that? I don't know. Let me go ask HR and legal what they think about that. Yeah, <laughs> and we exactly. had a whole interesting set of conversations around that, that there was all kinds of sensitive HR stuff that was just being stored by whomever and accessed by whomever, you know, that managed that particular server. And HR had no clue. They thought I was completely volatile. And there was, you know, who knows what was in there that they didn't. They didn't need random sysadmins getting a hold of. And obviously, you know, I mean, the sysads can read the emails too and all that. But when you assume volatility and volatility is not there, that's a big deal. So tagging, back to tagging, I wonder if the tagging problem can't be used in, in the destruction and retention process as well. In other words, today's tagging model is basically classification only. But what if you were to take all unknown data and apply some sort of default tag to it along the lines of must be investigated? And as long as it's in must be investigated state, DLP blocks it, right? Like something that basically makes people double check what they have, why they have it before they're allowed to say email it, for example. Yeah. Well, you could come up with all kinds of taxonomy to do things like that. I thought you were going towards the retention thing. What if you had tags that said restricted, retained for five years, restricted, retained for three years? And then you just run automation that says if, if there's a tag on it says restricted three years and we're past the three years, it's gone. 
So there's no thinking, no, nothing to do there. And so I think you could do that. I think you could do the same thing with, uh, obviously you could do it with legal holds. You could do it with all, all kinds of different patterns for how you build that taxonomy. I like that. And, and basically just a way to crawl and apply that tag, you know, the unknown tag or the expires by such and such date, unless someone intervenes tag to all that legacy data. So you've got your high level targets, you know, I'm going to keep referring to what we've come up with so far. You got your high level targets, you got your go forward plan, and now you're retroactively tagging everything with some sort of system that basically says nuked unless nuked in time X unless Y occurs and give people that chance to do whatever Y might be. And back exactly. to your metaphor, the firewall allow deny, have it, have it all be denied by default if it's in any of those, those vague categories. And that leaves only the actual crawling and discovery piece to be automated to get, you know, to get to where all that tagging model is working. I, I like that model. I think that's sound. Again, though, I've seen the crawlers take forever, even with the application mapping overlays feeding them. I've seen those take forever and still miss a lot of data. But I would argue with that entire approach, you should, within a few years, have a very sound data risk governance program. Yeah. And and again, you have to think in terms of, of the risk. And so if you have a program that only gets you 50% there, are you better off than 0%? You know, my, my mom used to always tell me, I'd say, man, I hate paying so much taxes. And she said, well, you got a choice. You could pay the taxes on the money you've made, or you could pay zero on zero. <laughs> you know, it's your choice. Yep. No, that's exactly it. Yeah, give, giving up a percentage is better than giving it all up, right? Yeah. Um, no, that's a great metaphor for that. And I think it's a valid approach. At the end of the day, and this and this reminds me of, I'm thinking of uh, Hubbard and Syerson's book, How to Measure Anything in Cybersecurity Risk, or How to Measure, yeah, Anything in Cybersecurity Risk, I believe is the proper title. And, you know, they talk about that having a single data point is significantly better than having no data points. And they walk through the actual mathematics of that and they get into Monte Carlo simulations and Bayesian math and everything else to basically prove if you've only got one or two dots on the chart, that's significantly more realistic and better for you to operate off of than having zero dots on the chart. Well, you go to the old, the old, uh, I, I was a recon survey officer in the military. So I did surveying and for the field artillery and stuff, and I'm a pilot. And so there's a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, mapping stuff that goes on. If I have two points, I don't know where I am. If I have two points of reference, I don't necessarily know where I am. As soon as I get that third point of reference, that third data point, I definitely know where I am. And so that's what you should be looking for in your metaphor there too. Yeah, just always try to have the true triangulation. Try to try to at least get enough data on the field that you can you can declare where you're at. It's a good model. It's a very good model. So data risk governance versus traditional data governance emphasizing that risk. We've walked through classification. We've walked through tackling the big and obvious ones. We've walked through the go forward plan. Let's circle back to the word risk as it applies to all of that. And let's talk about selling that risk to the business or selling that risk addressing to the business. Because at the end of the day, and maybe you are selling the risk itself too, right? At the end of the day, the business should be self-aware enough to know what the business's objectives are, right? You should be able to go to any other business leader and say, hey, our business objectives are X. You're part of that X is Y. And now let's have a conversation about the risks centered around Y. How often with this model do you find yourself selling the risk first? That's question one. And then question two, if the risk is already sold, how are you selling the solution and how challenging is that? So, you know, now you get into the whole discussion about quantifying the risk to begin with and quantifying it in a unit of measure that the business leaders and or board members are willing to listen to or understand. 
Well, we all know what that unit of measure is. It's dollars. And so that's the easy part. And so now how do you quantify it? And sometimes we get caught up in some very, very extensive mathematics to try and come up with an exact number. And it doesn't have to be exact. It has to be relative. And so that's the first thing is don't get so caught up in the details that you're trying to get to the pennies and think in terms of order of magnitude. And so when when I'm going to communicate to executives or the board or anybody else at that point, I, I definitely don't want to bring in fear, uncertainty and doubt. You know, we all know how that works and it doesn't work as well as it should. But I can certainly quantify that if this occurs, this event occurs, it could impact your revenue line by this much as it's perceived by the clients. Or if this happens, we're going to have to spend this much money. Or if uh, this risk is being mitigated through insurance, it's going to cost us this much more money. So, you know, if you can get some broad stroke numbers against something like that, I think it becomes a pretty easy conversation where you're saying, well, I mean, yes, you can spend a million dollars to put in these controls and you it may never happen. But that's just like life insurance. It's not really for the benefit of the person that bought the policy in the end. And it's betting against a thing that you never know that may may or may not ever happen. It's the same thing. So I like to frame it in terms of insurance and frame it in terms of risk against revenue. Yeah, I've always used the car insurance model. The idea that, you know, you're going to pay some amount every month to the cyber team, just like you would pay your car insurance every month. And you're paying it to reduce the pain of the bad thing that might happen, even though the bad thing isn't a guarantee to happen, right? I, I like that model better than the life insurance model. But but sometimes the reality is it is more the life insurance model, and we just have to be better insurance salesmen when it comes down to that one. Yep, that's true. All right, so you're selling them on the risk, you're selling them on this cost, and you're going orders of magnitude. And it's interesting. I want to do a show coming up, and, and we're going to touch on this very briefly here because I really do want to focus a whole show on it. But FAIR, the FAIR model, and the idea I mentioned already, Hubbard and Syerson's book, there's a lot of ideas out there that we can accurize our dollars measurements, you know, using that unit of measurement, the dollar sign, we can accurize those numbers greatly and get into a greater amount of detail using more sophisticated methods than the standard like five by five grid. And FAIR is one of those models that gets us more accurate. But as you learn digging into some of those models too, back to my my comment earlier about a couple of points on the map is better than none. You'll find that that in reality, as you accurize, you get into ranges. And it's an interesting, you know, Bayesian math and Monte Carlo Sims end up producing ranges, not exact numbers. But they're still more accurate, I think, than the 5 by 5 grid. And so I wonder, you know, I just went through a FAIR presentation this week, and I've studied it, and I've got books, and I, you know, I'm just not 100% sold on FAIR. I'm not. And and the reason I'm not sold on it is what you just said right here, that orders of magnitude is usually sufficient. Getting it down to the penny is usually not required. That if you can do the broad strokes of, hey, save a million, spend 100K versus, you know, save 10 million, spend 100K. Hey, let's do that one. You should be able to get those broad strokes and get the business on board with that. And to me, that's being driven off of nothing more sophisticated than the five by five risk matrix. Is that is that the model you're using? Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I, the five by five is just a really basic, easy visual to give to people. And and I always liked it from not so much the specific square that we're falling into, but that it creates uh, what I would call a risk boundary or a tolerance boundary. And so if I look at that five by five in the upper right hand corner at some point where it goes from red to yellow, you know, that's my maximum tolerance for risk, no matter what it is. 
And at some point where it changes from green to yellow, that might be the boundary for somebody else. And so that's the visual and the visual that it's much like looking at, you know, any, any gardener chart that, you know, if they're farther to the right and up, then it's supposed to be better from gardener's point of view for our, from our point of view, if it's farther to the right and up, or it's moving in that direction, then we're probably moving the wrong way. So I like five by five only from a visual indicator point of view. Again, you get too caught up in the exacts. You're just going to wrap yourself around the hub and not get anywhere because it is orders of magnitude. I think fair is useful. I think there's lots of good stuff in fair. There's nothing wrong with it. If you've got somebody that's that qualified as a mathematician to execute, and it's all conditioned on having good sources of data to start with, because if you can't get source of data to go in, then you get garbage out, you know, the old saying, right? So, and what can end up happening if you don't have good sources is you end up with just a bigger, better, faster, wrong answer. Right, right. I get you there. All right. Well, listen, we're getting close to the end of the show. And one question I want to ask you um, that I try to ask every guest is here we are with your models. Uh, Here you are morphing data governance into data risk governance, coming up with whole new ways to address the game. Obviously, you're still in the game. What motivates you? What keeps you going in InfoSec? What inspires you to every day come up with new models and new ways of addressing and tackling the problems? Well, it, because it is so fast moving and, and it does touch so many aspects of the business, there's, there's always a new, a new thing, a new nuance every day. There's nothing rote about security at all once you get to a certain level. Granted, you know, there's some folks in the sock that would disagree with me, but once you get to a certain level, there is nothing rote anymore. And so the challenge uh, to me and the, the ability to, to kind of uh, think through some abstractions that, that we might not have to go through otherwise, things like this, this idea of data risk governance and order of magnitude. And because of the way I've approached it in my, you know, pulpit preaching of uh, security leaders must be sales leaders. I'm also bringing in this this concept of moving to the dark side and being salespeople too. As soon as you start thinking in terms of sales, now you have a different set of tools to help sell and portray your program. And so that's kind of exciting is to see people start to understand and the lights come on that, yeah, okay, we do have to say it a certain way and we do have to present it properly. So yeah, all those things, but the challenge in the end, the changing pace, the changing environment, the constant pace is what excites me. I think most of us who've answered that question have agreed on the changing pace and the ever-changing landscape and how that always keeps the game fresh and keeps us going. But you're the first one to point out the sales mission. And I'm a big believer in that same statement. I love the idea that all security leaders are also sales leaders. I think it's intrinsic to the game. I'm so grateful that you pointed that out. Well, listen, Patrick Benoit, Global Head of Cyber GRC and BSO at CBRE, thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now. 